Hey, open your Bibles back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We come to that wonderful section in John's Gospel in 129 through 34 this morning. It clearly must be one of the greatest texts in all of the Scripture. Certainly one of the greatest statements ever made regarding the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our privilege to exposit from it this morning. If you're visiting with us, that's what we do at Grace Church of the Valley. We exposit, meaning that we give the sense of the Scripture, the writer's theme of the Scripture, and we just teach through books. And so we're in John's Gospel, and we looked at last week, 119 through 28 of John, and then this morning we come to 129 through 34. Let me read it for our time in worship. It says in 129, the next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, and I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. There is the reading of the Scripture. Now, we're looking at this account Grace Church, running basically from 119 down through 34, it is the testimony of John the Baptist regarding the person of Christ. Of course, we're reading John the Apostle's Gospel, but we find ourselves in the testimony of John the Baptist regarding the person of Christ. Here, it picks up the account of John the Apostle in 1, 6 through 8. Look back there just for a moment. There was a man sent from God, this is John the Apostle writing, whose name was John, and he's speaking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the lights. So there is John the Apostle talking about John the Baptist. Well, we come this morning running from last week, 119 through 34, This is the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, within that testimony, there are two testimonies that he gives. One is negative and one is positive. The negative testimony was the encounter we saw last week in verses 19 through 28. It was the encounter uh, with John the Baptist by the Jewish delegation of priests and Levites, and in verse 24, the Pharisees. They wanted to know if John the Baptist was the Christ. He said, no, I'm not the Christ. Then they wondered if he was Elijah. And he said, no, I am not Elijah. Then they still wondered if he was the prophet. And he said, no, I am not the prophet. And so they said to him, then who are you? And John the Baptist declared that I am the voice of one crying out, in the wilderness. Now, before us, as we look specifically at 129 through 34, as best as we can see, the delegation is gone. Uh, 
And John the Baptist is going to provide a fuller understanding to the questions that were asked in 19 through 28. And John the Baptist's response in the second testimony addresses, if you will, the delegation's concerns, much of what went unanswered. For example, look back in verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? And he doesn't really give a, a full answer, why are you baptizing? But I want you to note, he will answer that now in our text in verse 31. He said in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And so what was asked in the earlier testimony is now answered in this second testimony. You'll note, look at verse 27, our message last week, where it says, he, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy, he said, or I am not worthy to untie. It's somewhat nebulous. That, listen, there's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie this sandal. Well, as we come to this text in 129, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here he's more clear. In verse 26, he says, I baptize in water. And he's somewhat uh, incomplete there until John the Baptist will now argue, it, argue for it. Look at verse 33. He says, this is he at the end of 33 who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So understand, Grace Church, that the questions raised by the Jewish leadership the day before are resolved on the next day. And I want you to understand, they're not resolved for the benefit of the delegation. They're resolved for your benefits. They're resolved for the readers of John's gospel. And so he gives a fuller explanation in this second testimony in 129 through 34. Now, what John the Baptist is going to do is present for us Jesus as the Lamb of God in 29 through 31, okay? And then in verses 32 through 34, he's going to tell us how he reached that conclusion that Jesus is, in fact, the Lamb of God. And so what he does, just for the sake of a direction here, he presents two arguments does John the Baptist, that reveal the identity of Jesus Christ for this purpose, that we might believe in him. There's two arguments. The first argument is this, the who. The second argument is the how. In the first argument is the who. It's the presentation of the Lamb of God in 29 through 31. That will proclaim who Jesus is. The second argument is the how, and it's going to be the confirmation by the Spirit of God in verses 32 and 33. And that will reveal his identity to us, namely in verse 34, that he's the Son of God. Okay, so two arguments. Let's walk right into the text. The first argument is the presentation of the Lamb of God. The presentation of the Lamb of God. Pick up the text in verse 29. Here, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him 
and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, you'll note there, just as we begin in verse 25, it says the next day. Well, clearly, it's just the next day after John the Baptist's testimony, the previous day. The previous day was in 19 through 28. So here it is, the next day, the day after the delegation was sent to question John the Baptist. And here in 129 is a wonderful scene. Maybe one of the greatest scenes in all of the Scripture. As John the Baptist beholds Jesus coming to him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, he didn't say, Behold a Lamb of God. He said, Behold, definite article, the Lamb of God. It is the Lamb, if you will, provided by God for the sins of the world. So as he identifies Christ, as he lays eyes on Christ, I don't think it's the first time he laid eyes on Christ, because as the, as the text will drive us, he's already baptized Christ. But on this particular day, after that delegation was sent, with his other disciples standing around John the Baptist, he lays eyes on Christ and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, if you're Jewish in that day, that is not an unfamiliar statement. The Lamb of God. The Jews would be familiar with that. We and the Jewish people knew that sin can only be removed by a blood sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So no forgiveness could ever be given in the Old Testament apart from an animal sacrifice that would serve as a substitute for sin. That's the way God set it up. The people of Israel had sinned. Their sin needed to be atoned for. And God set up a sacrificial system in the Old Testament where an animal would be sacrificed. They were well aware of this concept. concept. They also knew that a lamb would be sacrificed at the Passover season. You remember, beloved, that the Israelites took the blood of the slain lamb and they placed that blood where? On the doorpost. You remember that back in Exodus 12. It was placed on that doorpost on the night that the, Israel, that the Israelites would leave Egypt. And that night, the angel of death slew the firstborn of the Egyptians and the angel, as it passed through that, time, that place in Egypt, saw the blood of the slain lamb, and it would pass over that house and deliver them from death. So they were well aware of the Passover lamb. But in addition to just the Passover, um, lambs were sacrificed daily. They were sacrificed at the morning offering. They were sacrificed at the evening offering, the evening sacrifices. They were sacrificed on many other occasions as you read through the Old Testament. In fact, they were offered, were lambs specifically, offered for sin offerings. They were offered at burnt offerings. They were offered for a new mother. They would often just be brought into the temple and they were sacrificed for nations. They were sacrificed for returning exiles. If you could just put a picture in your mind, the priests of that day, in essence, were butchers. 
I mean, they had a priestly role, but when you think of their role, they daily sacrificed lambs to atone for sin. In fact, in most Old Testament passages, the lambs spoke of a sacrifice, and it was often combined with a reference to that phrase, the taking away of sin. And so the lamb takes away sin by becoming a sacrifice. Now, we're well aware that those sacrifices could never fully take away sin. They were only a shadow of the reality that would come. The sacrifice was obviously repeated. It would be repeated daily. It would be repeated yearly at the Day of Atonement. Now, as John the Baptist comes to us in the New Testament, he's making reference when he lays eyes on Christ as the Lamb of God, as the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to atone for your sins. So in the New Testament, Christ is the Lamb of God. And here is the brilliancy of the text that God himself provides the provision for your sin. He gave the Lord Jesus Christ for you. So when you think back to the nation of Israel, they wanted a king But God sent a lamb, and it is by his blood that you have been delivered, even this morning. It is by his blood that you have been rescued. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ that you have been pardoned. It is by the blood of Jesus Christ that you have been redeemed. Listen, the bottom line is our Messiah came to deal with your sin and with my sin. This is why... The Savior came into the world to die as the Lamb of God that your sin might be removed. And I just would have to just pause here and say this is the greatest truth in the world. It is the greatest truth in the world right now. I mean, this is better than anything going on in the world. This is better than any sporting event. This is better than any election that comes upon us. This is better than any luxury that God Almighty God sent down His only begotten Son and He now takes on this metaphor when John the Baptist sees Him as the Lamb of God. I love how J.C. Ryle said it. He said, Christ did not come to earth, at least at His first coming, to be a conqueror or a philosopher or a mere teacher of morality. Ryle said that he came to save sinners. He came to do that which man could never do for himself, to do that which money and learning can never obtain, to do that which is essential to man's real happiness. Ryle said he came to take away your sin. And if you're in Christ this morning, when you think of the glorious work of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you think back to the beginning of John's gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Incredible. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He is God in the flesh. He is the creator of the world. But as John the Baptist lays his eyes on him, he says he is the Lamb of God. Maybe it would be enough for me to say right now as you sit here in this auditorium, have you come to Christ? Have you expressed faith in Christ? Have you looked to Christ who is the Lamb of God? 
This is the wonderful truth of the Scripture. Jesus Christ is the great sacrifice of which the former sacrifices were only types. Of which the former sacrifices were only a shadow. Certainly you'd probably be familiar with Isaiah 53. That he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth and like a lamb that was led to what? Slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. There is that wonderful picture of Christ in Isaiah 53, 7, where he was like a lamb that was led to slaughter. And of course, that was for you, for your sin. Peter, speaking of the Lamb of God, said that he himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And he said, by his wounds, we are what? Healed. You know, it's interesting here when you think of John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As best as I could see it, beloved, John the Apostle is the only writer of Scripture that speaks of Christ being the Lamb of God. Certainly you're familiar with that text, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But whenever you see that reference, it's always noted, if you will, and written by John the Apostle. In fact, he loves that theme. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus there, in the glories of heaven, is seen as the Lamb, as the supreme object of worship in heaven. Let me just show you just for a moment. Look over in the book of Revelation. Lots of turn in this morning. Revelation chapter 5. Look over in your Bible at that wonderful scene there. It's the scene in heaven where there was no one able to open the scroll, as John writes in that vision. Remember there, he saw in 5.2 of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who was worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I begin, John the Apostle says, to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, look at this, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. I love that scene. He looks there in that glorious, majestic, wonderful scene at that throne room, and no one's open, able to open that scroll until here they see the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's also described here as the lamb. And the lamb, if you will, is standing as if, slain. Look at verse 7. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before what? The lamb. There is a picture, beloved, forever for us in that scene in heaven. 
that those 24 elders and these myriad of angels, thousands upon thousands, are seen, if you will, bowing before the Lamb. That is why I believe when we get to heaven, we will see Jesus Christ in His full humanity, if you will. It's a glorified body just as we have, and I believe He's going to have holes in His hands. And we will forever remember his sacrifice. But here's that scene. He sees the 24 elders before the lamb. Look at verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Here's why. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. What a picture this is in heaven. But the picture we're left with is of the Lamb. And then if that's not enough, John the Apostle continues in this vision on the island of Patmos when he turned and saw the resurrected Christ. Look at verse 11 of chapter 5. I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the, and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, God, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a scene. But whenever you see the Lamb, you see glory, if you will, and you see worship and adoration. Look over just a couple pages in Revelation chapter 7. There, there's that great multitude in heaven from every nation. And John the Apostle on the island of Patmos that day said in chapter 7, verse 9, And I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. And let me just stop there. I'm so thankful for the 12 who will be going on our Albania summer trip because there will be Albanians in heaven, right? They're coming, if you will, from every tribe, every people, every language. It still stuns me that just about 25 years ago, there were five believers in the entire country. But beloved, when we get to heaven, not just Albanians, there there's a great multitude. No one could number from every nation, all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne, verse 9, and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to Him who sits on the throne and to the what? To the Lamb. John the Apostle could not get this picture out of his mind because when he was carried into heaven, he's there at the throne room of God and at the throne room of God is the Lamb. And look at verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is just the scene of heaven. In fact, look at verse 13. 
Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And he said, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. Here it is again. In the blood of the Lamb. There is the sacrifice of Christ again. And I love that expression in verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And here's why. For the lamb in the midst of the throne, I love this phrase, will be their shepherd. So he's not only the lamb as if slain, but he's your shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John, the apostle, could just never lose sight of who Christ was. In fact, one more, a couple more. Look over in Revelation 21. Let me take you to the scene of heaven there. It's a wonderful scene. It's the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. So the scene is heaven. Look down at verse 21. And there were 12 gates were 12 pearls. That's 2121. Each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and what? The Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. In fact, look down to verse 26. It says they will bring into it glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Have you caught that phrase before? So he's the Lamb, but there's evidently here a Lamb's book of life for all who have expressed faith and belief In the Lord Jesus Christ. So can you imagine that day? John the Baptist standing with his disciples. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, we just go back just a few books to the book of 1 Peter. Look back just there for a moment. There's a marvelous truth there. And I think you know this truth, but I want you to see it with your eyes again. 1 Peter, just a few books back. 1 Peter chapter 1. After a call there to be holy. And here's the imperative to be holy. In 1 Peter 1.18, knowing, and, and apply this to yourself as his readers, that you were, you know, it says ransomed, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, He says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I love that phrase, the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished. The writer of Hebrews says, speaking of Christ now once at the consummation of ages, He has been manifested to put away sin 
by the sacrifice of himself. Listen, he is the Lamb of God. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Lamb of God slain his blood for you. It's an incredible truth. So Jesus here is identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. And what does that Lamb do? If you look back in John now, you know it well. He's the Lamb of God who takes away what? Sin. He does that. You know, it just I think I mentioned that to you a month ago. It just broke my heart last month. To be at the Vatican and look at all the basilicas. And then to walk into that one particular basilica and just see a long stairway ascending to the very top that I I could hardly see. And there were people crawling on their knees all every step like this. You think, well, this is in movies. No, this is not in movies. I just saw it. And every step they go up, they bow in prayer because they're hoping to spring a family member from purgatory earlier than what's been allotted to them. And I'm just saying to you, he is the lamb. He is the lamb that takes away sin. And as Bo said this morning in his testimony, if you've been justified, then the the reality is you've had all your sins forgiven. Every past sin, every present sin, every future sin has been taken if you've trusted Christ by Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, literally in the Greek, who wipes away your sin who carries your sin away. Literally, when it says takes away sin, who gets rid of all your sin. Now, you say, well, who does he do that for? Well, look back in John 1. It's fascinating because this is the text. Who does he do that for? Well, look back at John 1.29. You can see it there. He takes away the sin of the what? The world. Now, you need to listen very carefully here, okay? We're not speaking here of universalism. But he takes away the sin of the world. And as we read John's gospel, we're going to find out more about this. But here, enough for me to say this, and I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully. The Lamb is not limited to the Jewish people. The Lamb, if you will is extended to the whole world. And what John the Baptist is doing here is describing humanity in general, if you will. In other words, our Lord's sacrifice for sin reaches all human beings, here's the key, without distinction. In other words, the gospel transcends all racial all national, and all ethnic boundaries. He is not just the Lamb of God for the Jewish people. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he reaches all human beings without distinction. Now, John is very clear there, if, here in 129. But look over at John 3.17. I think you're aware of this. 
And this is John the Apostle writing. John 3.17, For God did not send the Son, His Son, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be, what? Saved through Him. He came not just for the Jewish people, but for the world. If you remember back, we don't have to turn there. You can write it down in 1 John 2, 2, that he is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, but not only ours only, but also for the sins of the what? Of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2. 1 John 4, 14 says this, that we have seen, John the Apostle says, and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, not just for Jewish people. Okay, so listen here. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all people without distinction. But we also know that our Lord's sacrifice, I'm going to put it this way, was efficacious for only those who savingly believe. Okay? Sufficient for all people without any kind of distinction, but it's effective or efficacious for only those who savingly believe in Christ. So as He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not everyone is saved. I just got an email today from a friend describing a man that I know who believes in the doctrine of universalism. He believes that all are going to be saved, but that's not what the Scripture says, okay? That here, to have your sins taken away, for it to be effective, and I'm speaking to you, you must savingly believe in the gospel. You say, well, how so? Well, look back in John chapter 1, right? Not everybody's saved. Look at John chapter 1 in verse 11. He came into his own, and his own people did not very clearly receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So there, there has to be a reception of Christ. There has to be a belief in Christ. Look over at John 3.15. Okay? In other words, it's efficacious. You must believe in John 3.15. I think you're aware of that. In 3.15, for whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life, but you got to believe to him. Back up in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You remember when that plague broke out because of their grumbling and complaining, a brazen serpent was lifted up, and whoever looked at that brazen serpent would be healed. I suppose if you didn't look to the brazen serpent, you would have died in that plague. And of course, the brazen serpent back in Numbers becomes a picture of Christ that whoever believes, whoever looks to him may have eternal life. Look at John 3.16. You know it so well. For God so loved, there it is, the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what? believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life you've got to place your trust in christ look at verse 18 whoever believes in him 318 is not condemned 
Whoever does not believe is condemned already. You've got to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in this building this morning, and you are, you're here listening to me, you can't rely on granddad. You can't rely on grandma. You can't rely on a friend. You can't rely on a counselor. You're going to stand before God. And it either comes down to this. You've either believed in His Son as the Lamb or you've not believed. If you've believed, you have eternal life. If you've not believed, in verse 18, you're condemned. And you're condemned as you sit right now this morning. In fact, look over at chapter 3, verse 36. Couldn't it be clear? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not, I always like that phrase, obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. A lot of people say they believe, but you've got to be able to obey his commandments. Whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. Just a few more. Look over at John 5, 24. 5, 24, it says there, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word, Jesus said, and believes him, who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And so you've got to trust in him. And so here we have such a wonderful Savior. Listen, his sacrifice is sufficient for all people without distinction, but our Lord's sacrifice is effective or efficacious for those who savingly believe. So no wonder John said, look back in the gospel after in chapter one, after he recognized and identified Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said in verse 30, this is he whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, you'll note that he's stating in verse 30 something he's already said. Look at back in verse 15 of chapter 1. He said, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Look over in chapter 1, verse 27. He said, Even he who comes after me, he said, The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so he says it a third time here in verse 30. Though he comes, there comes a man who ranks before me. He says, he says, he was actually before me. After me comes a man. We know that John the Baptist was born six months prior to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also know that John was created But Jesus created everything, including John. We know, as I mentioned, that John was born six months prior to Christ, yet Christ is the one who existed before him. And so by affirming his preexistence, he affirms again his preeminence over all things. Jesus is the Lamb of God. So here's the first argument. It's the presentation of the Lamb in 29 through 31. It proclaims who Jesus is. But here would be the question. How did John the Baptist know? How did he know? I mean, you're just left with that. How did he really know he was the Lamb of God? He just looked and he pointed and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. But how did he really know that Jesus indeed was the Lamb of God? It's kind of interesting. Look at verse 31. He said, I myself did not know him. He said, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water 
that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, this leads me right into the second argument, okay? The first argument was the presentation of the Lamb of God. The second argument is the confirmation by the Spirit of God in 32, actually, through 34. And John the Baptist gives his testimony as to how he reached that conclusion. He said, for this purpose, I came baptizing with water, verse 31, that he might be revealed. Look at verse 32. And John, again, that's the Baptist, bore witness. Here's what he said. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now, just stop for a second. Here's how he knew. He saw the Spirit like a dove descend on him. And then John says it remained on him. Now, John's the only writer who says that it remained on him. Now, he's clearly talking here about the baptism of John the Baptist of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not in this account, so I'm not going to take you there. Because my purpose is John's purpose, right? You can go to Matthew, you can go to Mark, you can go to Luke. They all record the baptism that John the Baptist baptized Jesus Christ, okay? But for John, rather than narrating the account of the baptism as the other gospel writers do, the Baptist here describes what he witnessed that day on the Jordan River. He doesn't emphasize the voice from heaven. The other Gospels did that. A voice came out. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But rather three times in our narrative, that's the point, he describes the work of the Spirit of God that day. In other words, as Jesus is coming out of the water from being baptized, here the Baptist in this testimony says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. Now, when he says there, do you see that in verse 32, I saw the Spirit. It's in the perfect tense, and it just reveals uh, kind of a, a settled conviction. What John is telling you this morning by the Spirit of God is I saw a demonstrable sign. And then look what he says in verse 33 again. He says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Listen, beloved. It was at the Lord's baptism that God the Father revealed Jesus as the Messiah through a sign. And the sign here, the Baptist says, was miraculous proof to John the Baptist regarding the identity of Christ. In other words, from the text, God the Father told John the Baptist that when this sign of the dove occurred, this would be verification that this is the only begotten Son of God. So John the Baptist saw the Spirit remaining on Christ was the confirmation that he needed that this, no doubt, is the Son of God. Now, what's interesting here is, and you don't have to look here, but the other Gospels say the the sky and the heavens opened very clearly. It says Jesus 
saw the Spirit descending like a dove. But here in John's Gospel, it is John who says, I saw the Spirit of God descending and it remained on him. It is the only Gospel, as I mentioned, that says the Spirit of God remained on him. Now, what did John the Baptist see? Well, he saw the Spirit of God come, if you will, in the physical form of a dove. But, but it's not a dove. You say, well, why is it not a dove? Well, well, look at verse 32. It's very clear. The Spirit descend from heaven, it says, like a dove. Now, you're sitting there with me as I'm in my study this week. What does the dove represent? Okay. And, you know, it's almost a little bit humorous. I mean, and maybe there's some truth to this in other scriptures. What Bible scholars will say, it represents the quality of gentleness. It represents, it's like a dove and it was descending on Christ and it represents gentleness. And other people say it represents tenderness as a symbol of Jesus' ministry. Other people might say the bird or the dove was a bird of sacrifice, representing the coming sacrifice of Jesus like a dove. But I think those just clearly miss the intent of what's taking place here. The dove, beloved, fulfills, if you will, the Old Testament prophetic expectation of the coming Messiah that would be endowed with God's Spirit. Okay, Let me show you. Take your Bible, look over to Isaiah. Look over there for just a moment. I want to show you this with your eyes. It's not tenderness, it's not gentleness, although he certainly was that. This is prophecy. You say, how so? Well, look over in Isaiah chapter 11, when he's beginning to describe there as the prophet, the righteous reign of the branch. And I think you're familiar with Isaiah 11.1, 1, when it talks up there and it says, there shall come forth a shoot, you know this statement, from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's talking about the coming Messiah. And now this in 11.2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall what? Rest on him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But what you want to underline is that opening phrase in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And so here's John the Baptist as he beholds Jesus, if you will, coming up out of the water. He sees the spirit and dove-like nature come down. It's a representation of the spirit of God. And it's remaining on Christ, a la Isaiah 11:2. Look over in the book of Isaiah to Isaiah chapter 42. Let me show you this there from 40 to 66. It's talking about the coming Messiah, the servant of the Lord. And it says in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold, 42, 1, My servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. It almost reminds you of the account, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But look at there in 42, 1, I have put my, what? Spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. 
So you have in Isaiah 11 too, the spirit remaining on him. I'm going to put my spirit on him. Look over one more, Isaiah 62. Isaiah chapter 62. And I think you've, this is a wonderful statement. You've seen Isaiah 62 before. It's quoted by the Lord Jesus, but it says in 62.1, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Look at, it says there, Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, in Isaiah, just back up one, in 61.1, not 62, 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God, what, is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus quoted that in Luke 4.18 and said today in the reading of this scripture, it's been fulfilled. But there in 61.1, the spirit of the Lord is what? It's upon me. So right there, three different times. You know, it's interesting. I think you're well aware of, there's different times in the Old Testament where the Spirit of God would come upon a person and empower that person, empower that prophet, empower that king, give them enablement for a task. This is different. When this Spirit came down upon Christ, it remained on him, and we think it permanently remained on him as he was always full of the Spirit. So, beloved, here is the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, descended in a visible form on Jesus as a God-given sign that this was indeed the long-awaited Messiah. And you'll note as you go back to John now, and we close this out, go back there, it says there that he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. And I think we can pick up that next time because I want you to understand what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit lest there be any confusion today in the whole charismatic issue of what that will mean. But you'll note, look back at John 1. Here it says in John chapter 1, go back and look at the text. John the Baptist so clearly in 134 says, I have seen and born witness that this is, what? The Son of God. So, beloved, after the presentation of the Lamb, after the confirmation of the Spirit of God, John declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? He is God, and that phrase there, and we'll see it throughout, means that He's God in the flesh, And that term carries with it the idea of the deity of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So here's the first argument. is the presentation of the Lamb of God who proclaims who Jesus is. Here's the second argument. is the confirmation by the Spirit of God who reveals His identity as the Son of God. And I really believe that the Lamb of God and the Son of God are interchangeable terms. So listen, as you go from this place of worship this morning. Three things, just real simple. You've got to recognize, number one, who he is, okay? This is the focal point of John's gospel, okay? It is clearly to identify the person of Christ. He is God. 
He is Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Creator of the world. He is the light of the world. He is the life of men. You've got to identify that to be a Christian. And then secondly, I would say, you've got to realize what he's done for you. Realize, you must realize what he's done for you. If, if you know Christ, then can you believe it that he died in your place? That almighty God sent his only begotten, sinless, spotless son to die in your place as a sacrifice for your sin, for God's wrath to be appeased so you could enter into the presence of God. Listen, I'm thinking of that statement in Mark 2, 5. Your sins to the paralytic are forgiven. Who has the authority to do that? Christ. When I was in Rome, and if you're Catholic this morning, I'm not trying to, just trying to tell you what the Bible says, but as I walked by in some of the basilicas, the red light was on in the confession booth. And I could walk by it, the red light's on, it's active. There's these booths that circle the basilica, and it means that a priest is in there with somebody who's confessing their sin. And listen, I'm just saying, when you trust Christ as the Lamb, He's the one who takes away your sin. You do not need a human mediator to confess. You go straight into the presence of Christ. That's what he said to the paralytic that day. My son, your sins are forgiven. Here it says this in Hebrews 10. It says, your sins. God says, I will remember no more. Listen, when you come to Christ, he wipes away all your sins so that if I asked you today, if you were to die and stand before God and he were to ask you, should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? And the answer should be only one. Listen, he's going to let you in based on the blood bought, finished work of the blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That's the only reason you can get in. He's the only savior. He's the only spotless lamb. Think about this. All us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord God has caused the iniquity of us all to what? To fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth as a lamb that was led to slaughter like a sheep that is silent before shears. He did all that for you. And finally, I would just say, listen, Thirdly, you've got to believe on Christ. You may be in junior high this morning if you trusted him. You may be in high school if you trusted him. You may be a mother in this congregation and you've been around this stuff for 20 years. But I'm asking you if you've actually confessed your sins to him and put all your hope in Christ. Fathers, if you've done that. Grandmothers, grandfathers, he's our only savior. Amen.